Very good. Good morning, church. How are we doing? This was a good week last week, wasn't it, for some of you who were here? And if you weren't here because you thought you got President's Day off, you missed out. Uh, we are continuing our series in John's Gospel this morning. Uh, Alicia and I have been in our house, I guess now, over a week, so I'm happy. I don't know why. I'm just really happy today and happy to greet everyone and see all the smiling faces. Thank you for not frowning at me when I talk to you. Um, and I find today's lesson a lot of fun, too. So you remember last week we were talking about the woman of Samaria, and so we're building off that story, and we have another good text for us today. So glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're thrilled. Um, if this is your church home and you come here regularly, keep it up. You get gold stars in my book, but, you know, they don't really count for anything because I'm just another person, you know. But as we are together as a community... We are filled with the Holy Spirit as we take our gifts and our talents and we put them into the hands of our Lord, as we invest in relationships with each other, as we grow in love and trust, this place becomes something special. Just like Mike's analogy to an oasis in the desert. In the Lord's church, you can find life. Starting in verse 27 of the fourth chapter of John. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? So we noted a few things strange about this situation last week. Uh, a man talking to a woman, uh, uh, a Samaritan woman of a different religion, different gender, um, different kind of moral standard in life and there were things that would potentially separate these two from having any kind of interaction together but Jesus just cuts right through that and so it's obviously an odd enough thing uh, that when his disciples come they kind of take note of it but for whatever reason they do decide not to say anything. Well, first of all, they have a rabbi who does unusual things from time to time. Um, and uh, maybe it was a situation that, you know, they just didn't want to ask the question in front of this woman or they thought, well, maybe we'll figure this out later. For whatever reason, though, they don't bring it up. But even before that conversation has, you know, much time to go on any further, before things unfold a little bit more, this Samaritan woman is ready to go back into town. And so the disciples just arrive, and she's not long there, and she books it out of there. Then leaving her water jar, 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 what's a jar? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So leaving her water jar makes me think that she left in a hurry. 
But in the hidden music of God, uh, John's gospel, we see something lesser being let go or left behind in order to take up something of greater value. So she abandons the old water and the old water jar in hot pursuit of living water. And in her excitement, we also see that she just blurts out, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You know, this may be some kind of hyperbole, but this also quietly attests to how central her messy and sinful personal life was in her own thinking. Jesus had told her, yeah, in fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you live with now is not, you remember that from last week. And in her mind, that's everything I ever did. It was that big thing in her life that was producing, it was a sin, it produced shame, guilt. It was that big thing that she just couldn't see around. And Jesus cut straight through that, straight through that. The pain, the shame, the brokenness. And in its place, Jesus had placed in the heart of this woman a thirst. A thirst for living water. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Who was sneaking the beef jerky to Jesus when we weren't looking? But my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is probably still physically thirsty. I mean, I, we're not told that he got the water that this lady, you know, was that he asked for. Um, he was probably physically hungry. We know that he had traveled a distance that day, and it's in the heat of that day. But there's something interesting going on here. And Jesus uses these moments to teach his disciples, and including us, things that are important. And there's something about this situation, this conversation that he, she, he has with this Samaritan woman, that takes precedence over eating and drinking. There's something more substantial and more significant going on in that meeting, in that interaction. Well, just like the Samaritan woman began her conversation with Jesus thinking he was talking about regular water, so now the disciples think Jesus is talking about regular food. Who snuck the snack to Jesus? We didn't see anything. What, what's this food that he has to eat? Well, John, it's interesting, he tucks in all of these hidden references to the Old Testament. And I think one that he had in mind comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This is the way that his gospel is built. It's these scaffoldings of layer and meaning, including all of this history of the people of Israel 
that comes to fruition and comes to light and is fully fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 8.3 says this, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Just as the Holy Spirit is a life-giving source of water inside of us that bubbles up, giving eternal life, so the Word of God is a substance that sustains us. Have you ever thought of God's Word that way? That God's Word nourishes us. And sometimes it needs to take priority over things like food and drink. It's very interesting to me. It's a kind of substance that the world cannot give us and that the world cannot take away. But our souls are nourished by it. The Word of God works that way. And also keep in mind, Jesus says, I am the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Someday, you and I and everyone in this room, we will no longer need things like sunlight or shelter. You will no longer need food to eat or water or other beverages to drink. You will no longer even draw breath. But God's word, which feeds you, that will last forever. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. That food that we can eat, the food of the mission that Jesus had, it sustained him. It was a substance that gave life. So we got to see the Samaritan woman's excitement. She drops her water jar, forgets what she, that was all about, runs to town, and blurts out, come, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And now we get to see some of Jesus' excitement as well. And think, think about this. I, you know, Jesus isn't just stoic there. He's excited about this. And it comes out in this text. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. So Jesus has just sown a seed in the heart of this Samaritan woman. And the harvest in her excitement as she goes, the harvest is almost immediate. In the time it takes Jesus to speak a few words to his disciples then, this woman stirs up the whole village. 
And before the disciples can say to Jesus, harvest is plentiful. What are you talking? Before they can even say, what are you talking about, Jesus? They look up and there's a whole village of Samaritans walking towards him. The phrase that the sower and the reaper may be glad together is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Amos about the fruitful harvest of the souls of humanity into the kingdom of heaven by Jesus Christ himself. Amos 9.13 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. An image of miraculous abundance before the seed has even had much time to be on the ground, the one who is harvesting is already coming behind and gathering from it. Unceasing fertility, miraculous abundance. That's the harvest that Jesus is talking about. He goes on to say, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Their fruitfulness is possible. The fruitfulness of this mission is possible. Any work of God is possible because of what has gone on before. It's because of the work of others. You know, the truth of this passage, it came to me in my church planting work in Africa when I was in Tanzania. At one point in my ministry, I remember receiving letters from village elders that were signed by 50 or 60 people in a village begging me to come and teach them about Jesus. They had heard that this guy was going out and teaching people about Jesus, a village over, and so they would send representatives to me with these letters and say, come and teach us here in our village. Sometimes we were growing so fast it felt like a dream. I mean, to go out and baptize so many people in a day that my arms are fatigued. It's, it's an amazing experience. I'm not going to lie. It's a wonderful thing. Well, we would have supporters who would come out and they would come visit and they would see everything that was going on. They would see all the things that we were doing. And they would praise God for that work. But they would also tell the rest of the church that, you know, we have some amazing missionaries over there in Tanzania. They're doing some amazing things. But those of us who live there and work there, we knew that we were the small part of that equation. That we had gone to a place that was ripe for harvest. People were hungry for the gospel. And when we come, we just kind of showed up The Holy Spirit had been there long before we were there. There had been a history there. Things had moved along to a place. You know, the Holy Spirit was there before us. He was in what we were doing, and He remained afterwards. He was the one who did all the heavy lifting. And that's the way the mission of God works. We put what we can in, we do our part, and we try to do our part with excellence. Because we love the Lord. But He takes from our weakness and our smallness and our littleness 
in our imperfection and through his Holy Spirit he brings an amazing harvest many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me everything I ever did so when the Samaritans came to him they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days and because of his words many more became believers well there's a lot of missiological implications concerning Jesus's interaction with the woman of Samaria in discipleship language you could call this woman of Samaria a person of peace a person that Jesus identified as someone who was thirsty for living water someone who was thirsty for what he had to offer people who are ready to receive the gospel they cut across every demographic of human society and it's surprising to me the people who make the really best evangelists a lot of times it's children or people who we would tend to dismiss because their lives are so messy I mean look at Nicodemus compared to this woman where would you normally put the money who's the one who has the theological training who's the one who has an audience where he can be heard and listened to who has all the right credentials and yet this Samaritan woman who didn't have any of that between those two who is the better missionary Jesus had woken up something inside this woman's soul and she had moved to this place from brokenness to faith with spectacular results a person of peace is a cultural insider and they serve as a bridge for the gospel to enter into whole clusters of relationships even within her limited social standing she was a part of that village that village's social structure and in her excitement she brings a testimony that causes the residents of Sychar to come and see about this man Jesus so if we follow the missional strategy of Jesus Christ first when it comes to who we are investing in and who we are encouraging we cast our nets wide who are the people we tend to ignore and dismiss who are the people we assume would not be interested in the message of the gospel Jesus looks past the walls people put up and he casts his net wide and that he recognizes faith and thirst for living water in this woman and it doesn't take much it doesn't take much and she's become this amazing missionary and she doesn't have this big long message does she she's like come and see a man who told me could this be you can just hear the excitement you can hear the hope you get people that are that excited about Jesus and usually they're, they're the ones we just look right past a young person 
someone leaving this messy lifestyle, someone who's not sat in a church week after week, and they catch a fire, and they bring that into a context of relationships. And people dream, and people hope. Faith grows out of it. Another missional strategy, look where Jesus spends his time. A lot of times, Jesus will spend his time and energy with people and in situation where the fields are, in fact, ripe for harvest. Where is the fruit being produced? We should ask ourselves that question from time to time. And notice also that he's flexible in his plans. I don't know that he was originally planning on staying a couple days there. But he says, look, the fields are ripe under harvest. And so he spends time investing in those people. And in the words that he speaks, many other people come to faith. So he's flexible. We need to learn from Jesus because a lot of times in churches, we waste a lot of time and energy trying to convince nominal and lazy Christians to be more intentional and fruitful in sharing the gospel with other people. And the 10% of a congregation or so that is ready to be challenged, that is really thirsty for living water, the 10% who's willing to try something new, who wants to be discipled, who wants to learn, who wants to invest, they go unchallenged. And they're not encouraged to the level that they should be. And we do not find the ministries to plug those people in. And so the church loses out on the benefits of their zeal and enthusiasm. So are you hungry for something more? I don't know. I don't know who the 90% are fully or the 10%. I've been here, you know, a little over half a year. I'm starting to get an idea who are the ones who are dialed in and who are invested. Are you ready for something more? Do you want to find a way to plug into this church? Do you want to take the next step in your relationships with other people in this congregation? Do you want to find a way to serve your church? You need to come and talk to me if the Holy Spirit's put that on your heart. If you have a desire for that, come and find me and we'll figure this out because it's important. And when you don't follow those nudgings to the next relationship level, the next level of commitment in your church, when you just kind of brush those things aside, you're not being obedient to what the Spirit's doing. And those habits of not listening, they get ingrained. Because when the Holy Spirit comes to us, He doesn't force anything on us. But He's gentle. And if you let yourself be excited like this Samaritan woman let herself be excited, God will take that and use it. It will be a blessing for you and a blessing for others. You know, the reasons that bring people into church buildings, sometimes they're pretty thin. 
There's a lot of people who come and they just think, I, you know, I really don't feel like I fit in. You know, politically, I'm just, these people have different ideas. The things that they assert, their stances and positions. You know, and we, we make it about these, these different things that, you know, we have to have these things in common and whatnot. The blood of Jesus Christ is strong enough to hold us all together if we let it and we trust. But sometimes when we make it about these little issues and whatever it is floating around and going on, we focus in on those things, but we're really quite ambivalent about the person of Jesus Christ himself. Are you indifferent to Jesus? Have you encountered Jesus in such a way that you're willing to entrust your life into his hands fully. You know, it's a, lot, a lot of times people come to church, you know, because we should do, it's, it's, it's good for the kids, it's, it's what my parents did, it's, what else am I going to do? I mean, the reasons that draw us here, sometimes they're not real deep or strong, and that's okay, keep coming. But sometimes when we make church into just a list of rules, just obligation, and we don't focus on Jesus Christ himself and how good and beautiful he is and his desire to have a real and living relationship with each one in this room, it's kind of, I'm trying to think of an analogy, analogy of that, so I'm thinking it's, it's kind of like getting married but never having sex. Can you imagine that? I won't push that analogy any farther. But if it's just a list of rules that you're supposed to keep and you never experience the pure pleasure of the company of Jesus Christ, you're missing out. You're missing out on the best of what it means to be a church and to be, a, be in relationship with Him, your Lord and your Savior. Some people go to church week after week to just get a little boost, a little inoculation against truly trusting Jesus. We're happy to receive a warm, fuzzy, or an encouraging thought and just enough Jesus in our life to kind of limp along, never fully Embracing the Lord, never fully receiving the blessings and the peace and the joy He longs to give you. Well, this Samaritan woman was thirsty for love. She was thirsty for love, and now she experienced something in the person of Jesus Christ that causes her to share the gospel with all the people that she knows. What is it that motivates this woman to do that? Some combination of joy and hope and excitement, I think. People like Nicodemus, when they experience something significant with the Lord, there's still some reserve there. 
he still holds back in some way. Because Nicodemus, he's thoughtful. He's well-educated. He thinks things and says things like, time will tell. We'll see how this plays out. And he also comes at nighttime, which gives you the impression that maybe he's asking questions. What will people think? What will people say? You know, joy of the Lord, it moves us to these places where we step out in faith. And when we do that, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? It does, We don't have a play script. We put it out there. It's a little bit embarrassing. You know, like I'm thinking an analogy of like, in, if I'm feeling it and I'm moved and singing and stuff like that, you know, for, for me, if my hands are like this, that is just like, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm loving worship and everything. It's, it's like, ah, for other people, you know, I'm reserved, kind of this Dutch background and, you know, I'm feeling it like, like this. But when we step into those places, it's like, you know, sometimes we feel like you're the one person in the church that's just like, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for you. You know, and it's just... And then you realize, I feel like I'm the only one doing this. And then sometimes we get a wind of, you know, another person in there, like, and we hear a little whisper, well, that was an embarrassing display, or, you know, who knows what it is. But the step out in faith, it gets uncomfortable for us. You know, I think of Peter, when he gets out, the joy of the Lord, when he said, come to me, he was from fear to scare to, wait, that's Jesus out there. If it's you, call me to come to you. And he gets out of the boat and he walks on water. The only other person in history that I've known who does this. But then when you get out to that place, is the wind and the waves and the doubt, the fear. What will people think? What will people say? And you begin to sink. You begin to doubt. You begin to lose trust. But some people, oftentimes, it's the people who feel like they don't really have very much to lose anyway. When they experience the joy of the Lord, they run out of the room, they go and they find their friends, and in their excitement, they yell things, they blurt it out. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Isn't that the way it works for us sometimes? We come to Jesus because of something someone has said, something we heard, a testimony that was given, but when we hang around long enough and we go deep enough in our commitment, 
in our devotion, we discover Jesus really is alive. And we discover firsthand just how really good Jesus is. I don't believe anymore just because of your testimony, Calvin. Just because of what you preached in your sermon. I now feel the joy of the Lord in my own heart. I feel it alive in my soul. I don't believe that God speaks to us just because Cindy Hoffman says, the Lord told me such and such. But I heard him for myself. It wasn't like I thought it would be, but I heard God for myself. You know, I I read interesting books from time to time. And here's an interesting book. The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, Russian author. You know, when communism took over Russia and they banned religious material, people said they made one mistake. They didn't get rid of the, the works of Dostoevsky or of Leo Tolstoy. And those two authors, if you've read them or know anything about them, they're deep and their message of faith is deep. And people came back to faith in Jesus Christ through their, work, their writings. So he's having a conversation with, uh, uh, he displays this conversation of a woman doubting. She's doubting the existence of God. She's doubting eternal life. Is there really something out there? And she's asking this question to this elderly monk. How can we prove it? How can, when we step out that flimsy branch of faith and it feels uncertain, our, and when pe- we notice that other people, we're worried, what are they going to say? Or When we step out there, how can we know? How can we be confident? How can we be sure? The elder said, there is no proving it, but you can be convinced of it. Well, then how? By the experience of active love. Strive to love your neighbor actively and indefatigably. Inasmuch as you advance in love, you will grow surer of the reality of God and of the immortality of your soul. If you obtain to perfect self-forgetfulness in the love of your neighbor, then you will believe without doubt, and no doubt can possibly enter your soul. You invest that much into love of God and love of neighbor. It becomes your whole life. And until you do it, you don't discover the fullness of what Jesus Christ wants for you or the reality of him living inside of you, telling you things, walking with you, encouraging you, helping you. After two days, he left for Galilee. 
Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had been there. So Jesus leaves Samaritan turf, and he heads further north, and he's in Jewish turf again, a place that no doubt in some ways is less fruitful, where he says things like, you know, I don't got any honor here. This is my hometown. But there's still people that are willing to welcome him there in that place because they had seen what he did down in, in Jerusalem, in Judea. And somehow they're maybe thinking, Something good of this might come for for us. We might get a little bit of something out of this by Jesus being here. So at least they welcomed him on those grounds. Well, it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Capernaum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum, in case you're wondering. Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and to heal his son who was close to death. So once again, we find Jesus in the place where he had performed that first miraculous sign of turning water into wine. And now this time, he's confronted with a desperate father who hears that Jesus was there and so he seeks Jesus out to ask him to heal his son. And then in verse 48, an interesting turn. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, that man, you will never believe. It almost seems like Jesus is rebuking this man. And indeed, it's not faith in Christ that brings the official to Jesus. He doesn't care about Jesus or his ministry one way or another. He has the desperation of a parent with a child who's dying. And that's how he approaches Jesus. Most of us who have had children, you know, maybe there have been times where you felt that desperation. When Sadie was a young baby, we stayed with another missionary family in Nairobi, Kenya, because we didn't have the finances to be able to get, you know, a hotel for that length of time. And there was a form of uh, a strain of whooping cough going through the whole family. And so as a, she was just this little thing, all arms and legs, she was six pounds, and it was six, six four, just over six pounds. And she caught whooping cough as a newborn. And we drove back, we get her down to Tanzania, and it gets so bad that when Sadie's coughing, we don't know if she's going to be able to clear things to get her next breath. She would turn blue, you know, past purple, or I don't know which, enough that we were just like, and then somehow she would get a little breath, but she, her, her little body was fighting so hard uh, that uh, she wasn't gaining any weight. She's starting to lose a little bit of weight. We don't have good medical facilities there. And I, re- I remember that feeling of several nights. Alicia would, you know, 
keep her apart in the, and I take care of Caitlin and other things, keep her apart in the little guest room that we had. And you know those little uh, baby booger suckers that, you know, the little things that you squeeze and it, you know. Alicia had that there in case Sadie couldn't clear it. And I didn't know what to do. Do 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 I get a plane ticket to back to the States? Do I, do we drive, where are we going to get the help that we need? There were a couple nights that I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to lose my child. And I remember that resignation in me. I remember that desperation. I remember how helpless and powerless I felt. And I remember that my prayers to the Lord, they were desperate prayers. They were desperate prayers. See, this man doesn't approach Jesus through conventional faith, but a desperation that is born out of love for his son. And because of that desperation, he keeps at Jesus and will not be dissuaded. Jesus says, unless you see a miraculous sign and wonders, you'll never believe. Oh, okay, I guess we're done here, and walks away. No, he is desperate. Sir, come down before my child dies. He won't take no from an answer, for an answer from Jesus. So Jesus replies, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. I think that's crucial. Like this man, perhaps you're in a season in life when you don't have a particular care or concern about the mission of Jesus Christ. But are you at least willing to take Jesus at his word? Because if you at least take Jesus at his word and you stick with him, in the end, you will receive your miracle. There will be times in our spiritual pilgrimage that our prayers will be more like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And there will be times that in our desperation, we will just have to take Jesus at his word and trust that he's going to do what's best for me and for the people that I love. When your faith is not strong, Take Jesus at his word. Keep trusting God. And then wait and see what he does on your behalf. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. So now as the story unfolds, we see desperation begin to give way to faith in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And this man becomes a missionary to his family And he tells them what Jesus has done for them with the result that that whole family becomes believers. 
This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. This man, unlike most Galileans, was not just interested in signs and wonders, but he had a desperate love for his son. And he was willing to take Jesus at his word. So the question I have for you is, what barriers are there in your life that are keeping you from taking Jesus at his word? Because eventually the circumstances of your life, they're going to back you into a corner. And when you're backed into that corner, you can do two things. You can turn and walk away. You can flip Jesus the bird and walk away. Or you can choose to take him at his word. And as you begin to cultivate that habit of taking Jesus at his word, when you cultivate a habit of trusting God, when you cultivate a habit of working together with God and trying to serve and build his church, you will discover that your faith has become the very thing that feeds and sustains you. I have food to eat that you know nothing about, Jesus tells his disciples. The word of God will become a life for you that brings purpose and peace and provides living water, not just for yourself, but it's so abundant and overflowing that it leaks onto everyone around you. That's the promise that we've been given if you will at least take Jesus at his word. So whatever needs you have this morning uh, for baptism, to be born again, to give your life to Christ, um, for prayers of this congregation, you have an opportunity to come forward and talk to me about those things as we stand and sing together.